Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. What is sleep? Some of you in this room still are familiar with that five-letter word? Is that how many are in it? Let me tell you something. Y'all told me. You warned me. You gave me a fair heads up, right? Like, hey, you're going to have a kid, and you're never going to sleep again. <laughs> that wasn't entirely true. There are definitely times I fall asleep, especially when I'm not intending to, but... There is definitely a level of exhaustion that comes uh, with this child existing in my life now that is different than what I've ever felt before. Um, And we have been told that we have a sleeping baby. Our baby actually sleeps. So I don't know what the rest of you had to deal with. And I'm just a pansy because what the heck. Okay, so get get this. I, I realized that I will probably never sleep in in my life again. And when that, when that realization came to me, there was a morning. There was a very early morning. And there was also mourning and grief attached to that. But here's the thing. They also warned me that you have no idea how little sleep you can actually operate on. You can be a relatively functioning human being on very minimal sleep. College was barely practice enough for that, you know? And so I, I really have found, though, that like, wow, as tired as I can be at times, and maybe you guys have been in the same place, it's amazing what we can handle as people. It's amazing how resilient we actually are. There's a lot of things that we can go through and, and, and just kind of make it through. It's incredible. In fact, there's this guy, his name is Admiral Jim Stockdale. Admiral Jim Stockdale. He was a prisoner of war between the years of 1965 and 1973. He was in a camp for eight years. He was tortured by the Vietnamese for eight years. There were many people who were in camp with him in this war camp who were prisoners of war, and not everybody made it out alive. They were tortured daily. And one of the people, when when he finally got out, he finally gets rescued, finally gets home, he had survived being in this war camp. And there's a guy named Jim Collins, wrote a book called Good to Great. He interviews Jim Stockdale and asks him, how'd you survive? Where'd you find your resilience? How'd you make it through that? And he said, before I tell you, you know who didn't make it out? It was the optimists. The people who went in there just saying, oh, everything's gonna be okay. I'll get out at Christmas. I'll get out, I'll get out next month. I'll get saved in a few weeks. It was the people who were just blindly optimistic that actually were immensely crushed by what they experienced when they were tortured. But here's what he said you needed to do. He said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. To summarize, he said, you have to confront the brutal facts of reality, but maintain hope. If there's, if there's one big idea I've been seeing in Revelation so far, it's this. We have to confront the brutal facts of reality. That, you know what? Life is going to be hard. 
There is going to be suffering. We are in this in-between of where we're waiting for the moment in which Jesus finally brings everything to fruition and rescues us from this, this suffering that we experience when he makes things right once again. However, we're stuck in this in-between, the thalipsis we've called it, the suffering, the spiritual, spiritual persecution and the in-between. How are we gonna stick through it? Did you know that the book of Revelation is a book of encouragement? How many of y'all need encouragement today? You can't hear that. I could use some encouragement. All right. Hey, I'm, I think all of you need some encouragement today. The letter of Revelation is a letter of encouragement, okay? And it's written to encourage the church, to encourage people who follow Jesus to do this thing, to stick with it, to not give up. John tells us about this unveiling of ultimate reality. That's what the apocalypse is. It's a peeling back of the curtain to see what's really going on. And what's really going on is there's a cosmic battle for your soul. And there's suffering that is going to happen. And there are things you're going to endure that are going to want to crush you. But at the end of the day, we know that God wins this battle. And God wins because God has already won. So much of Revelation is just saying, he already beat him. You just, we just got to hang on. We experience it as it's unfolding. But the ultimate spiritual reality, the brutal facts are this. God's already won. And so we can have hope with whatever we face, with whatever we're, we're, we're in front of at the time. And here's the thing, you know, when we think about resilience, which is just our ability to bounce back from hardship, to bounce back from things that, that are really rough or suffering in our lives, there are so many different things that we go to to build our resilience. A lot of us go to our career. If I just am more successful, if I just get the next promotion, if I can make the next jump in the pay raise, get the benefits, get the whatever. We think that is gonna be what helps us to be resilient because we have the right income set aside. Or, or maybe we think we're gonna be resilient because of a relationship. Man, if we just lock her down, man, just lock her down. Get the ring on it, like it's all gonna be great. Like maybe you think it's gonna be all fixed from that. If, you just, if I just had that person who got me, you know what I mean? We think that's how we're gonna be resilient, how we're gonna bounce back from things. Maybe we think it's gonna happen, we can be resilient by numbing ourselves, by allowing those things to creep into our life that just, at the end of the day, you're tired and you just wanna be more tired and you give in to whatever it is that you numb yourself with. That's your resilience, that's the way you're trying to bounce back. Is there's so many things that we go to for resilience, but here's the problem. They aren't gonna help us handle hard times. They really can't. They're going to fail at helping us to handle hard times. The way that we handle hard times is through exactly what we're going to see in Revelation today. This is a pause in Revelation. We've seen a whole lot of wrath being poured out. We've seen a whole lot of judgment coming. We've seen a whole lot of promise of what God's going to do. But we've also seen a lot of the grace of God and the fact that he has even rescued any of us at all. And right now what we're going to do is take a moment and, we're, and he's, he's going to show us what the entirety of redemptive history has been. He's going to go all the way back to Jesus. He's going to go all the way back to the fall of Satan. And he's going to talk about what we can hold on to, how we can be resilient in times that are hard. I'm really excited for you guys. This, this stuff we're going to tackle is way more helpful than any sort of self-help that you could ever get. You don't need self-help. You need God's help. We're going to get God's help today. We're going to dive into Revelation 11. Go ahead and grab that and let's, uh, let's get after it. It opens up with a throne. Okay, here's what it says. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple, we see the Ark of the Covenant and there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. 
The image here is an image of power. It's an image that almost defies description. John's looking into the throne room and he sees this incredible picture of the power of God. It's a transition from this pouring out of the wrath of the trumpets into a picture of the God who is on the throne. Consider this. How does the culture typically depict thrones? Just, let's just think in cinema for a moment. Avengers, Thanos, you know, the purple dude, big chin. Okay, scary guy, snaps his fingers, does his step. He can do it all by himself. Okay, he, he sits on this massive throne, right? And the way that the throne is depicted is this, this evil, spooky thing. And, and it's huge and it's domineering and there's power and it's dark. Star Wars, Palpatine, creepy guy with the, you know? Okay, that dude, what about, what about his throne? When we see him in, in episode six, right? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, you're a couple decades too late. Okay, he's sitting in there and he, he turns around, I've been waiting for you, right? That is so, it's creepy. It's creepy and, and, and he's a scary little mean old man and he shoots his lightning bolts and it's scary. It's communicating power, it's communicating this like terror, this rule, this dominion. Lord of the Rings, Again, you're a couple decades too late on that one. It's okay. But Lord of the Rings, there's a handful of thrones in there. And almost every throne that we see, what's interesting about the way that Tolkien shows these different thrones is they're all negative. They're all negative. The throne of Sauron, he's on this massive throne with fire behind him. You've got the throne of, of Gondor where it's being sat on by this steward who's just a glutton and doesn't care about the state of his people. Even the, the king of Rohan, where he's just giving in to all the lies of the enemy and his is all dark and cobwebs and everything. The way that our culture shows thrones is nothing like the ultimate throne. I wonder if there's something in us that doesn't want the thing on the throne to be what we bow to, you know? If there's something to us that, it's like the way that the culture just depicts thrones is always in this negative light, always this evil, this conniving, this manipulation, but, but really on the throne, on the ultimate throne is God. And it's a picture of glory. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture that demands praise when we see it. We look up and we're like, oh God, you're so incredible. You're so amazing. It's nothing like any earthly throne. This is the power that we see of God. And it's from this power that John gets a vision. Sound <laughs> like a dog. <laughs> I was like, sweet, we got it. It's okay. My baby does the same thing. You're, you're welcome here. Welcome to church. Um, my, my baby does the same thing. She, she'll chirp back in a sermon. She's probably in there now. And she's like, dad, wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> so he, he sees this next sign. All right. He sees, he sees a woman. She's a woman, all right? It says this. Then, in, then uh, in verse one of chapter 12, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. He sees a woman. In verse three, it says, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns on his seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to earth. And that dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is the first picture we're seeing. There's a woman, there's a dragon. This woman's pregnant. What, what, we, what, what we think that John is getting at here is he's showing us a picture of the people of God. 
people of God. We have a lot of, a lot of people kind of have two different main perspectives on this. They want to say either it's Mary or they want to say that it's Israel. There's kind of two, two competing ideas. Really, if you look at it, you can make an argument for both, but it seems to really lean toward the people of God, toward it being Israel. Um, but when you read it, whether it's Israel or whether it's Mary, the implication is the same, that this woman, this being, is giving us a child. There's a child we born. It's Christmas in May. You're welcome, okay? We have cookies in the lot. Just kidding, we don't. Wouldn't that be fun? Snacks every week? Okay. So he sees this woman on the throne, and this woman has a crown, okay? The crown is, is, has the 12 stars, which represents the 12 tribes of, of Israel, the moon often was a representation of Israel, reflecting back the glory of God. Sun is light. And then there's this opposite picture of the dragon. Now, it's not a real dragon. You don't have to be afraid that there's going to be these like wings and fire coming at you at any point in your life. You're okay. It's, it's a metaphor for what this adversary is. You see, the dragon is actually, is actually Announced later on in this text in verse 11, it, in verse 10, it tells us uh, who this dragon is. It says this dragon, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, this ancient serpent. It's talking about the enemy. The enemy, it also encompasses all enemies against the people of God. There's this dragon, and the dragon has seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. The number seven and the number 10 are both numbers of completion in the book of Revelation. It means he is completely powerful. Horns represented strength. It means he has a bunch of authority because the head meant authority. It meant that he had as much resources at his disposal as he wanted. That's the diadems. He had seven of those. It's a picture of this being that is immensely powerful on a cosmic scale, so powerful that his tail knocks down a third of the stars from heaven. What he's saying is this is the brute fact of reality. There is a spiritual reality that is more real than what we see now. If you've read Voyage of the Dawn Treader at the end where, where Aslan is talking about this land beyond, he says, it's a land that's more real than the one you're in now. There's a reality that is more real than what we see now. It's the spiritual reality of which these things are happening in. In that spiritual reality, there's this picture of a battle that's happening. The dragon does not want the child to be born because the evil knows that when the child's born, the game is over for evil. Evil's lost. Who's the child? Verse five, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1260 days. You see, this child is Jesus. Jesus was born from the woman. Whether you want to say it's Mary, whether you want to say it's the nation of Israel. Did Jesus come through the nation of Israel? Yes. Did he come through Mary? Yes. Was Mary protected by God? Yes. Was Israel protected by God? Yes. Okay, the point is that there's a child who was brought to us that had come to rule. The reference to the iron rod is a reference to Psalm 2, where it talks about this Messiah who had come, who would reign. It's referring to Jesus. And it says that Jesus was caught up in, in this retelling, in this, this symbol. He doesn't even hit the cross. He's like, Jesus was born, then he ascended, right? Well, if what goes up, if you know Newton, right? Isaac Newton, that, old, that guy, he's a great theologian. What goes, what goes up must come down. Okay, so because Jesus was caught up, we're expecting him to come back. That's part of the theology of the ascension. It says he was caught up. And the woman flees to the wilderness where she's been protected by God for this period of time. 
1260 days, it roughly comes out to about 42 months, which is about three and a half years. It's the time, times, and half a time that keeps being referenced in Revelation, where it talks about this period of time in which God is protecting and preserving his mission. He is not going to be stopped. God won't be stopped. He is the most determined being in the universe. He has set his plan. He has set history on his course. And it will come to fruition no matter what. When, let, me, let me tell you about, about determination, okay? I, uh, when I was 18, I was one of the few college kids at my church. And that meant I was the resident piano mover. Yeah, actually, Hunter, you know a bit about that, right? You, I, I always, it's you now, buddy. It's you. Let me tell you, I was the piano guy, all right? Why do church people own pianos? Sorry, if you're in here and you have a piano, I love you. You're okay. Just don't ask me to move it, okay? And why do they like to move them so frequently? So, you know, the youth pastor would get hit up, which now I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my life. You guys message me and I tell him, to, okay, please, I'm begging you, move the piano. All right, get this. So I would have to move pianos, you know? Because I'm a good Christian boy, wanted to love people, you know, share the love of Jesus by moving their 800-pound <laughs> piano. Some of y'all didn't know that. These things are heavy, okay? Inside of a piano, get this. I know this because I've moved a few. You open it up, there's a giant metal harp, mass, huge metal harp. Okay, just steel. It's got steel strings on it. That thing alone weighs like 700 pounds. And then the rest of the piano is roughly 100 pounds worth of wood, depending on what it's made of. So brother, brother asked me to move a piano, all right? We got to get the piano, man. I got it. I want to get it into my house. Great, I'll be there. Hey, you probably just need like two or, two or three guys. You'll be fine. So grab a couple guys, show up at the house. Turns out it was an apartment. Turns out the apartment was on the second floor. This was a new one for me. Hadn't done the whole vertical piano moving yet. So we looked at the piano, we're like, all right, man, we're gonna do this. Like we committed, we're here, we're ready to move it. We got out, let's do it. So we get ready to move this piano up the steps, right? So we get on there, we're all trying to, trying to get this thing to move and we get around the back and we're trying to lift it. We go up a step, it gets stuck go up another step, it would get stuck. And this piano just starts to get destroyed, okay? Like we're, we're the, the wood is scraping on the steps and he's like, it's okay, it's okay. I just want the piano in the house. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna paint it anyways. <laughs> okay, so we, we just, you know, I'm under there, I'm pushing. We got guys pulling and I get on the back and I'm pulling and they're pushing. And we get this thing all the way up the stairs to the landing. There were more stairs. And then we realized that the piano had to do what's called a pivot motion. It had to pivot in order to go up the next flight of stairs. It was at this point that we realized we were going to need a little bit more help than what we had. So one of the guys with me was like a arborist lumberjack kind of guy had in his car the means by which he like cuts limbs off of trees. You know what I'm talking about? Those guys, okay. So he had stuff in the car to do that. He goes to his car, like, wait, wait, I got a plan. Goes to the car, grabs the supplies, comes back, Man climbs a tree, <laughs> ties the strap to the tree, climbs down said tree, and then ascends the apartment building. Makes it to the roof of the apartment building. Gets the strap, you know, we throw it over to him, he gets the strap. Goes over the other side of the apartment building, 
attaches it to some other structured tree. I don't even know, power generator, who knows? Something on the other side, ties it there. And then man gets back on top of apartment building and he's like, we're ready. And he starts to use a wench to lift the piano. And so we had to time this thing. It was like synchronized swimming, you know, with the, the water. Okay, we were like dialed. So he gets up there and said, okay, ready, push on three. One, two, three, push. Was it on push or on three? I don't know. But then we would go ahead and push it and he'd wench and it'd move an inch. Then it moved another inch, and we just kept going. And then the, the roof started to get damaged by the thing, and the tree is like bowing as we're going up. Guys, if you were there that day, there's probably some things you would have said to me, some loving correction of why I should have never committed to this in the first place. You would have observed a circus. It felt like a circus in the middle of it. But let me tell you, we were so determined to get that piano up there to that apartment that nothing was going to stop us. We just kept going. Like this, this whole like picture of what we're seeing of what God does and, and who God is and this like peeling back of the curtain of ultimate reality, it might look like a circus to you. You might be reading through some of the stuff. You're like, what the heck? A dragon and a tail? And like, here's what you need to know. God is determined to finish this thing. He's going to finish his plan. He's going to get this thing done. He's going to make sure that piano gets in the apartment. Like he has a purpose. He has a plan and he's going to make it happen. And there's a lot of things along the way that we're going to look at and are going to be confusing or perplexing, maybe not sit well with us, but we know that what he's doing is going to happen. He's going to bring it all the way to fruition. You see, in the next part of the, the text, he talks about this other time in history. John almost like rewinds way back. And he talks about the moment in which Satan is cast out of heaven. Verse seven says this. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels, that's where I got my name, guys. Angel, okay. And his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The most important thing here is Satan getting thrown down. There was a battle. He was trying to take over, do his own thing, have his own power, and he lost decisively. How many times is thrown down repeated? Enough, right? Like he's it's repeated multiple times in there for us to see this picture that Satan has lost. He was kicked out. He had lost. Now he tried to take some people with him and he did. He took like a third of the angels with him in, in, in some of these like different stories where they talk about what happened. It says that he had taken these angels who sided with him and he's cast down to the ground. You know, when we talk about Satan, sometimes we, it can be a little spooky. It's like, there's this perspective that he's this really powerful individual and that's part of what the analogy of the dragon is. But really, when we look at what Satan does and how Satan works, it's all tied to this one tactic and it's twisting the truth. The name of Satan here, it says like, uh, and this is how we know the dragon is tied to this idea of who Satan is. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient servant who was called the devil. You know what the devil, the actual word for that in Greek is? is diabolos, okay? And diabolos means slanderer. 
slanderer. In fact, we got the word devil because it's a cognate that we just like translated. It actually means slanderer, which means to purposely say something against another individual to harm them. He's the slanderer. He's the deceiver. He's the liar. That's his tactic. In verse 10, it says he's the accuser. He's the accuser. He's there to, he's there to convince you that God's truth is not truth. You guys, it is so important that we know truth. It is so important that we know the truth because the enemy's best weapon against you is lying. If Jesus is the word, if Jesus has the final word, Satan is trying to jam as many in there as he can to try to get us to lose sight of what's true. And so you can look through, look through the culture. There's so many lies that are spit out about who God is about what his character is, whether or not he's loving, whether or not he cares about us, what he thinks about what it is that we do with our bodies. There's so many lies that get spit out about who God is. Those are all Satan's counterfeit ideologies that are coming to surface, saying the opposite of who God is, the opposite of what God's about. Satan likes to twist with labels. Labels. He likes to twist with sound bites things that are easy to say and to spit out and to repeat. One of the more popular ones lately that I've heard is people say uh, that Christians have this false persecution complex. Like, you just feel like you just made up a word. But it's a label that's getting taught. Oh, you think you're persecuted? You're not. You're really the ones in power and you're the reason why people are, are being harmed. I don't know. When you read scripture, it's pretty evident that the purposes of the world against the church is to persecute the church. That's what it says. That's the truth. And so if something comes against you and says, no, you're, you're, just, you're just making this up. It's a lie. You're not actually this way. In fact, you're the persecutor. Well, maybe there's some truth in us being ungodly in certain arenas, but the truth is still God's truth. And that's something we can still count on. And so when it comes to this cosmic battle, the dragon's tactic is going to be lying. Even next week, you're gonna, we're going to talk about the beast and the other beast. The dragon lies to them too. It's part of how he gives his power. He lies and he convinces and he sends them to be against the church and to destroy the church. That's what Satan can do. And the way that we combat that, the way that we're going to overcome, the way that we don't let that get to us is what it says in verse 11. After he says that this salvation has come, the power of the kingdom and our God and authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. Verse 11 says this, that they have conquered him by the blood of the land and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is how they win. This is how the church perseveres. This is how the church prevails. We prevail by these things and these alone. This is gospel-centered resilience. This is how we bounce back. We bounce back by these things and these things alone. It's not going to be from your career. It's not going to be from your income. It's not going to be from relationships. It's not going to be from whatever achievement you've made. It's only going to be these three things. If these three things are the way that we overcome, we ought to know them, right? We should internalize them. Here's the first one, okay? We need to know that Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. That's the blood of the lamb. We deserve death because of our sin, because of our rebellion intentional against God. 
We deserve to die for that because we've offended this holy God and he has to be true to who he is and, and bring righteousness and justice. And so we actually deserve death. But in his infinite wisdom, love and grace, he found a way to satisfy both the wrath of God and the love of God in one consummate redeeming act, which is the act of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. His blood spilled in your place. That is our identity. That is the truth that the blood of Jesus has been spilled for you. Not only that, the second one is this. The, the, the lies can never do this to you. They can never take away your testimony. They can never take away your story. Okay, you, you, you can't take away what God has done in your life. If, you, if you've spent time looking at your life, you could point to multiple different occurrences where you would say, if that never happened, I would not be here. There are so many things you can look back on and say, it's only the grace of God that I'm here today in this room. It's only the grace of God that you're still alive. <laughs> There's so many near-death experiences I had in college. It's the grace of God I'm standing here today, okay? Like, it's the grace of God that many of us are where we are today, that we're even considering the ideas of Christianity right now. It's the grace of God. You see, no one can take your story from you. No one can take what you've experienced with God what you know to be true about God, they can lie about your identity. They can lie about what you should be doing with your time. They can lie to you politically about whatever. Like they could lie about whatever they want, but they can never take away the work of Christ in you. You can always count on that. The last one is this. The next resilience builder, it says that they love not their life unto the death, meaning I want Jesus more than I want anything else. I want Jesus more than I want anything else. That's the hardest thing to say and really mean it. I love how sometimes we'll sing worship songs and in these worship songs, they make really bold, really bold claims. When, and there was this one song called Scandal of Grace and it would say, oh, to be like you, to give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. That song, we were like, can we sing that? <laughs> can we authentically say that? Jesus, there's no one beside you. I just want you. Can we actually say that? You see, that's the big question of our life is where are our affections directed? Is Jesus number one in our affections? And I'll tell you right now, throughout the day, that probably changes constantly. I know just for myself, it's really easy to kick Jesus off the throne of my heart and say that something else is more important to me than he is. It's so easy to have other things take the place in our affections, but it's a miss because the way that we overcome the way that we're going to have resilience in this life is going to be by wanting him more than we want other things. This is how they overcame. This is at the core of what I think John is even instructing the church to be aware of. He's saying, hey, look, peel back the curtain. This is the brutal fact of reality. Satan's ticked and he wants to take you out. But here's how the church overcame. These three things. You can hold to these three things. These three things can define your life and they're where we'll actually find resilience. So Satan's not happy that this is how we're gonna win. This is how we win because God's already won, so we win, right? So he's not happy about that. And in verse 12, it says this. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan knows that he's on his last leg. You see, the great lie he tells us is that he's in the ring. No, he's on the ropes. He's not, he's not in there really being able to take you out. No, he's on the ropes. He's already been beaten. But he's trying to take as many things out as he can with us. This answers the question of, well, if God won, 
Why are things still so bad? Because the enemy wants to devour the church. He wants to devour those who are faithful to God. And so he's going to do whatever he can to twist the truth. This proclamation from heaven is really a summary of this entire chapter. If you look, it's like verse 10, 11, and 12 are exactly the flow of the chapter where you've got the, the beginning, you've got the victory from the people who love Jesus, then you have this Satan who's angry and doing his thing. This is how they describe what Satan is doing in the next verse. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. There it is again. It says Satan's going to come after the woman. He's coming after the people of God. This, he's, so, so they flee and, and they're given the means by which to be free and to flee and to be protected and to be nourished for this period of time in which they are going to be under persecution and in suffering. And then in verse 15, it says, the serpent, this dragon, always think of those as interchangeable as we're in here. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in the flood. But the earth, the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. It's like, dude, even the earth has got God's back in this one. Like, it's gonna happen, okay? So no matter what the enemy wants to do to take him out, it's, it's a no contest. It's already been won. Even the earth is supporting it. You know, this is, this is God reiterating the story of his grace, okay? If you read throughout the Bible, there are multiple stories like this the Exodus is a very similar story to this, where the people of God are rescued and taken into the wilderness to be nourished and protected and become his people. And there's this pursuing dragon of Pharaoh who comes and this flood that washes away. Like It's this typology of the Exodus that's seen there. It's seen in Jesus. When Jesus is born, the great dragon of Herod wanted to murder all the kids between like one and three years old. And so Mary and Joseph escape into Egypt. They're protected. This typology is true of the church as well. The church, the people of God, are protected by God himself so that we would persevere. But just because we're protected doesn't mean we won't still experience suffering. That's part of the brutal facts of reality. The brutal fact of reality is that the dragon is still on the loose. The, the dragon is still doing his thing. And for a time, we will experience suffering. We will experience the thalipsis, but we can overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives more than we love Jesus. In verse 17, the dragon is, is completely upset. It says, he was furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So the people of God, the church, he's making war on all of them, all those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Cliffhanger. Right there. It's like, boom, sit on the sand of the sea. Next week, you'll get to hear what he does. But he's going to do his best to try to take us out. But he's not going to win. He doesn't win because God's already won. Here's John's goal. John's goal is to help followers of Jesus be resilient in hard times without giving up on God. You will face hard times. You will go through suffering. It will look like it's not going to work, like it's not going to happen. You know, we eventually got that piano in the apartment. I know you all were wondering that because last service they told me they were wondering that. We eventually got it in the apartment 
And there was this moment when it came in, we're like, ah, finally, like after all that hard work, after all that like ridiculousness of the wench and like pushing, there was this release of saying, we did it, we made it happen, it's here finally. There was this like payoff that happened where finally we could play the piano and we could sit down around it and, and spend just a moment being like, wow, we actually like did that thing. Here's the reality. The determination God has to finish our plan, none of us are gonna get to take credit for it. None of us are creative enough to put the wench on the tree and jump on the apartment building, okay? We're, none of us are gonna ever be able to do what God has to do for us. You see, God is the one who is determined to bring us to fruition. God is the one who's determined to help you to persevere and to prevail in times of trouble and to be resilient for his sake. And he's the one who does that work in us. That's why we, it is so important for us to be immersed in those three things that it was talked about in this chapter, those three things that help us to be resilient. So these are three questions that you can just ask yourself as a way of doing some internal work, internal inventory, but also as a way of building some of that gospel resilience where you know that it's not because you're gonna be amazing, it's not because you're going to have it all figured out or you're going to be such a great Christian that you make it. Like, it's going to be because of one of these things, three things, okay? Number one, it's the blood of Jesus, okay? So you have to ask yourself, have I been covered by the blood of Jesus? I know that's kind of a weird Christian phrase. If you're not a churchgoer, you're like, no, I would not like that. Here's what that means. <laughs> Here's what that means. It means that have you been defined by what Jesus did for you? Jesus did something for you. He took your place. He paid the price so that you and I would be able to have a relationship with him forever, to know the one who loves you perfectly from the inside out, the one who will carry you through your entire life, the one that you can trust with your everything. That's what it means to be covered. What's your testimony? What's your story? That's another Christian word for like, what's your story? What, what has God done in your life? What can you point to and say, wow, you know what? If, if God never had me in that math class, I wouldn't know Jesus. If God, if, God never, if God never crossed my path with this person, I wouldn't know Jesus. What are those things that you can look back in your life and just take an inventory and say, wow, God, you really brought me here. And it's you who has saved me. And you can trust in that. You can never have your story taken from you if you know it, if you've internalized it, if you live it. The last one is this. Who or what do you love most? Who or what do you love most? Because that's the question that we have to ask ourselves every time we're facing suffering. Do I love my comfort? Is my comfort what's most important to me? Is, is, my, is my reputation what's most important to me? Or what, what's most important? What do I love most? If the answer is not Jesus, then we just got to start back over and repent, right? So we say, okay, all right, God, like I did it again. Like I put, I put something else on the throne of my heart. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I want you to be on the throne of my heart. And he's faithful to forgive us every time that we confess and repent to him. He's faithful to forgive no matter what we've put on the throne. And so we can build gospel-centered resilience with these things that John gives us just straight from this vision that he's seeing in heaven to say, you know what? The brutal fact of reality is you will experience hardship, but the truth and the grace of God is that he will help you to prevail in his name. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.